taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Peter Friedlander who is an Associate Professor of South Asian Studies at the Australian National University in Canberra and the author and translator of a brand new book, Kabir Poems in Transformation, A Fountain of Creativity. Welcome Peter. Thank you very much Di, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Yes, it, and it's very exciting to see this book. I know it's been many years of work. Indeed, it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, how long sometimes projects take to finally come to fruition. It was probably 10 years ago when I had the first insights into the main themes of this book. And wonderful to hold it in my hands now and see it. It's a fabulous book, and, and we'll get to some of the detail behind it. But just to begin, mm. who was Kabir and when did he live? a really good question. Well, so Kabir is a very well-known figure in India, and he's famous as having been a medieval period saint who was by birth a Muslim, but taught teachings which were not really Muslim in their content or Hindu in their content or any other particular religious movement. So he's known to be a spiritual teacher who tried to persuade people that they could rise above all the kind of distinctions which separated them. The precise dates of his birth and death are not known, but he's often said to have lived around the year 1500, maybe being born perhaps around 1450, and maybe dying somewhere uh, a little bit later than that, obviously, you know, 100 years or so, perhaps, if we hope for the best. Yeah. Now, how is he remembered? In, in what, what text did he leave? Did he leave spiritual mm. instructions or polemical arguments what did he what, what what's the legacy that we find ourselves with 500 years later i suppose what we're really encountering here is what were once oral traditions and continue to be oral traditions and then alongside them the written versions of his verses because he composes predominantly short two-line verses kind of couplets and uh, longer pada verses they're called or shabda which are kind of lyrical verses of sort of perhaps 5, 10, 15 or 20 lines. And then sometimes he also composed longer verses, which were called Romani, which were several paragraphs or a few pages in some cases. And his songs were probably originally transmitted primarily amongst his followers because he was an influential figure who had people gather around him. And then over time, his most popular songs also became uh, the rep part of the repertoire of a whole network of singers of devotional songs in North India who were talking about the nature of the relationship between individuals and the divine. And his texts were first recorded probably in around 1570, so not long after he died probably, in the, well, the sort of precursor to the Sikhs sacred text, the Guru Granth, which had composed before that collections of verses by different saints, including Kabir. And then somewhat later, 
you'll find manuscripts of his verses also being written down for about 1614 onwards in Rajasthan amongst the followers of other religious traditions who were also involved in similar kind of quests for the spiritual within life. And then possibly a little bit later still, you had the texts written down within the Kabir tradition itself. It seems that people had relied on simply oral memory for a long time. But sometime by the 18th century, people were writing down Kabir's verses as they were remembered in the east of India, around Varanasi, where he lived and died. And that collection of texts is called the Bijak, and is also very well known to this day. And the sacred text of many of the followers of the Kabir punt, the tradition of followers of Kabir. So what language were these verses written down in? I mean, I would have expected the mm. ones that are recorded in the Guru Granth Sahib of the Sikhs to be in Punjabi. Are they in Punjabi or another language? Well, amazingly enough, the languages that people were speaking at the time in India were not so sort of strictly drawn out into boundary lines of this being Punjabi and that being Hindi. So what happens is that Kabir's verses within the Guru Granth Sahib are written in a form of language which is between Hindi and modern Punjabi. And it's a kind of, for a Hindi speaker, you just hear it as being old Hindi. And for a Punjabi speaker, you tend to think of it as an old form of Punjabi. Whereas the texts which are recorded in Rajasthan are in a variety of different kind of forms of what we nowadays call Hindi. And then the ones which are recorded in the Bijak in the East were written in what we now think of as Eastern forms of Hindi dialects. So the language is is in a number of archaic dialects, in other words, that are kind of related to modern Hindi. Exactly. And also the other factor is that even within the same verse, if Kabir is describing different characters talking with each other, then the women and the men and the kings and, the, and himself might be speaking in slightly different dialect forms. So it's rather like a, a modern drama or something is the way that language used to work in India too, which is that different people spoke slightly differently depending on who they were. And he gives a different voice to each of his speakers, which is uh, a good dramatic device. Absolutely. So you can often tell as you, as soon as the song begins, they'll reverse because they're sung as well. But they'll be, if it sort of starts out by saying something, oh, girlfriend, for instance, hey, Saki, Mm -hmm. that you know that Kabir is imagining this is a kind of conversation that could have taken place amongst women talking with each other. Yes, and I mean, it's not unusual still in some languages to have honorifics uh, for formal contexts and, uh, you know, informal forms for uh, domestic contexts. So, mm. I guess it's a bit like um, in India you had this way in which in more formal, high-register kind of texts, people actually spoke completely different languages in the same text. But in the Kabir verses, you will find that everybody's speaking. It's a bit like the difference between English and then how it sounds if somebody's meant to be a Scottish character or an Irish character. There'll be different aspects of how the person's speech comes out. But it really sort of suggests as well that he was speaking to different audiences and for instance, one of the songs we could listen to or I could recite the translation for for you today um, is basically about gardening. And it seems it's addressed to people who were gardeners. 
whereas another song is addressed to somebody who's a dancer, whereas there are other verses addressed to saints and sadhus and yogis and kings and brahmins and just friends, brothers. Okay. So now, uh, generally Kabir is thought of as a a very significant mystic and maybe even a bit of a revolutionary. How is he significant and revolutionary? So within Indian traditions, there's a whole kind of alternative culture which goes on at the same time as the mainstream. And there are various aspects of Indian society which people have often criticised, and they've criticised them from the times of the Buddha onwards. And particularly people have pointed out the way that birth-dependent status in society doesn't reflect the way in which different people actually have different abilities. So Kabir's famous for being a stern critic of people putting on airs and graces because they are born into a particular caste or community or are regarded as by birth having been a Brahmin or some other high-status occupation. And then the other topic which often comes up in Indian tradition, which Kabir is particularly famous for, is criticism of people pointlessly carrying out religious rituals without thinking about what it really means. And a third aspect of what makes Kabir so fantastic is that he's a great voice for criticism of external religious practices rather than turning around and looking within yourself. So the majority of his poetry is verses. The main theme is that external searching for the truth in life is not going to work. What you have to do is just look within yourself, sit within yourself. So it's very analogous in some ways to some sorts of Buddhist and other spiritual traditions. It doesn't have a particular name. It's just the verses of Kabir and the verses of his contemporaries who are sometimes called saints and sometimes called the worshippers of the divine without form. When I read some of the poems, I have the impression that he has uh, some kind of... Uh, he, he's referencing a lot of tantric architecture, you know, chakras and mm. uh, and channels and, uh, you know, drops and things like this, but uh, it, it's in a coded language uh, so that only people who are already familiar with those ideas will know what he's referencing. That's right, and that's one of the challenges for readers of this kind of material or listeners to it, is the way that it uses lots of symbols to refer to things. And the symbols can be everyday objects and descriptions of things that we do, or they can be using the notions which you've just described as chakras. So it's important to realize, too, that although they seem in many cases to be the same as what we might hear about when we're hearing about modern yoga and some other modern tantric practices, they're also, in a way, a description of Kabir and his confederates and companions' practices, which were not exactly the same as what we think of as yoga nowadays. Okay. Now, a part of the book is a description of earlier translations of a hundred verses now tell me just a little bit about the hundred verses and and why why were some of these earlier translations significant so on the one hand you have um the kabir's verses being transmitted for four or five hundred years in india 
amongst Hindi speakers in northern India, mostly um, lower status members of society and minority community members such as some of the Muslims of North India, Sufis and others. And then uh, towards the end of the 19th century, people from other communities started to explore what were the traditions of these marginal communities in India and minorities. And as a part of that, people saw the songs of Kabir that were being sung and started to write them down, started to uh, print them as well as an important fact. And then as they did that, um, one gentleman who was called Kshiti Mohan Sen, who was uh, from, born in Benares, but was of a Bengali background, he um, became very influenced by Kabir. And he says in his writings about Kabir that he heard his songs being sung and he had friends who sang him songs of Kabir. But over time, he became convinced that the songs were somehow had been altered over time and didn't contain just the pure teachings of Kabir. And so he started to create versions of them which conformed to what he thought the songs of Kabir should be saying. And he said he collected them from oral tradition, but also looked at books. And in my book, I've looked at the way that the earlier oral tradition was written down within the Kabir Panth and in some of the other Hindi-speaking movements in North India. And then what happened to these verses that Kshiti Mohan Sen edited for a new audience? And what happened directly was that his teacher, who was Rabindranath Tagore, a person who was the first Asian to win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913 for his own verses called in a collection called Gitanjali. So Tagore also became very keen on the verses of Kabir. And while Tagore was in London to get the Nobel Prize, a woman called Evelyn Underhill, who was a Christian mystic, was very struck by the spiritual presence of Tagore. Uh, whilst he was reciting his poems in Hampstead and other places. And she ended up collaborating with Tagore over one summer to translate Tagore's poetry into the then currently way, fashionable way, of expressing the ideas about Christian mysticism, mysticism that she loved and was a great advocate for. So we ended up in 1914 with an extremely influential translation of a hundred verses of Kabir being published in London and in New York called Poems of Kabir or Songs of Kabir, which were a joint work of Rabindranath Tagore and Evelyn Underhill. And they, in a sense, were the verses which led to a global awareness of Kabir, which hadn't really existed before that. But it's Kabir seen through a particular lens, it's the Bengali Renaissance of the early 20th centuries idea of how Kabir could be freed from having been the voice of the people and transformed into the voice of an idealized Indian mystic who wasn't a member of any particular sectarian community. Yes, it's a, it's a strange evolution. And, uh, you know, in the process of Sen's editing which is a polite way of saying murdering maybe or <laughs> conflating, confusing the, uh, the, the texts that he worked with and then Evelyn Underhill and Tagore's 
uh, reification of the translation into terms that were more familiar to a, a Western Christian audience, uh, the end result seems to be a fair fair way away from what the sources were. I must admit as well that when I first realised that the things that I were familiar from with from Hindi language texts often com- were the source for Kriti Mohan Sen's version, um, and then Tagore's translation, I was sort of puzzled by how was it that so much of the process of meditation which is described in them is left out. And instead, all that's left is the sort of lyrical highlights of the peak experience which practitioners have. And I guess it seems at one point a kind of uh, barbarous, barbarous kind of approach, a bit like bowdlerizing a text to remove all the method and only leave the peak moments. But on the other hand, it was expressive of its time and it did play a significant role in making Kabir respectable in India. So ironically, up until this point, Kabir had never been thought of as being a respectable teacher for this kind of thing because his language was the sort of of the people and it wasn't sophisticated whereas Tagore's translations were sophisticated and fitted with a modern image of how India could project itself at the dawn of the 20th century as a global spiritual centre. Yes, in a universalised, homogenised, sort of pre-digested way, perhaps. Mm. And it's quite striking as well that amongst people who've read my translations... Two of the responses which I've had have been um, from a number of people who are followers of modern spiritual traditions of Indian mysticism have said, we always wondered why the verse ended at that point and didn't include the teachings which should have obviously been in it. Which is an interesting feeling for some people to express, that they sense that somehow the English translations missed out things which should have been in there. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very grateful that you've recovered... Uh, an earlier version of the texts. Now, we've only got about 10 minutes to go, so we might go to some readings of some of the poems. What would you like to start with? I'd like to start today with verse 4 from the translations in my book, which is called in English, Don't Go Out Into the Gardens. In Hindi, it sounds a bit like this, the title of the verse. Bhago na ja, na ja, teri kaya me gulzar. So, this verse is addressed to somebody who's basically a gardener. Don't go out into the gardens. There's a flower garden in your body. Let your actions be the plants in the flower bed. Let your practice be their watchman. Drive away the crow of ill thought. Behold how beauty blooms. Let the mind be the skillful gardener who takes care in his restraint. Don't let the seedling of compassion wilt. Water it with forgiveness. In the center of the flower bed, let an extraordinary rose bloom. Its petals are the true rosary of liberation. Weave them into a garland and wear them. From that lotus with eight petals arises the infinite eternal drama. Kabir says, O mind, awake. Let go of the endless cycle of birth. Yes, so this is exactly the sort of thing where I think a, a symbolic reading is is called for in the centre of the extraordinary rose bl- 
blooms, the lotus with eight petals. Uh, that sounds a bit like the the the, the chakra at the top of the head. Yeah. Exactly. So the, the the different references into in this verse all are analogies for different parts of the spiritual practice. Your own body is the flower garden you need to look after. The plants are your thoughts which grow within your garden. You have to be careful to make them flourish in the right way. You need compassion to water them, and you need to let an extraordinary rose bloom. The first rose that's described in it is probably a rose in the center of the body rather than at the top of the head. And through meditation on that, your consciousness then rises up to the top of your head. And, and then imagine this passing from within us into the real infinite nature of the universe. So it is an analogy, and it is something where clearly different people would have been told slightly different things by their teachers about how the analogy functions in relation to spiritual practice. But we can get a strong sense, even without knowing the details of the practice, of the way in which, yes, it's got this redolent quality of turn inside, cultivate your own mind and heart, look within, and by looking at something related to this notion of the chakras, you'll be able to move beyond your limited consciousness in this body towards a state of unlimited consciousness. And and thereby letting go of the endless cycle of rebirth, which is, you know, an unusual syncretism for a Muslim weaver to uh, mm. ref- reference. Absolutely. So that's one of the ways you can say as well that on the one hand, Kabir's verses are very clear, there's only one God. And he's all regarded within Sufi and Muslim traditions as having been a teacher of the true doctrine of uh, religion, which is that there is only one God. But on the other hand, he also incorporates the daily lived experience of people around him, which incorporates numerous aspects of yoga and seeing the basic problem that we all have as being not just that we have trouble in this life, but if we don't realize liberation, we will be endlessly reborn and have suffer in all of our lives. Okay, so let's move on to the next, next verse. Mm. What would you like to read next? Well, I'm, I'm going to read out another verse which also has to do with this theme of the inner practice because it's such a strong element in Kabir's verses. And this one, in English, I've given it the title of Become an Acrobat and Dance. And it's a remarkable verse addressed to his own mind, but he wants his own mind to become like an acrobat and involved in a kind of special dance you'll hear. And I also have to say that to understand this verse, I'll give you another piece of information, which is when I was living in India back in the late 1970s, one day a group of acrobats came outside the house I was staying with to in, in the village, and there were two musicians and a young woman, and the two musicians had, one of them had a long pole, which was about 12 or 15 foot high, which he was a bamboo pole, and the young woman shimmied up to the top of the pole, dressed up in all her finery, and started dancing. So that is the practice in sort of everyday life that people are describing, uh, and I'm going to describe to you when they sing verses about acrobats in spiritual traditions. So this is it. This is a verse which is called in Hindi, Nachure Meroman Nathoi, become an acrobat and dance. 
Oh, my mind, become an acrobat and dance. The drum of wisdom beats night and day. Everybody hears its sound. Nine planets and moons dance. Even in death's realm there is rejoicing. Put on makeup and climb the bamboo pole. Dance above the world. Oh, my mind, dancing on the thousand-petal lotus, please the Creator. If you would not fall into the ocean of the world, don't abandon your art. Kabir says, listen, brother Sads, stay disciples of the true Guru. Yes, uh, another practice advice poem about, um, I mean, again, I imagine that... um, Nine planets and moons dance uh, is probably also some kind of symbolic reference rather than to the outer planets and moons. I think it's simultaneously to the outer planets and to the inner structure of the microcosm of the body. So the sun and the moon are the left and right sides of the body. And it's imagined in this kind of practice that if you can concentrate on your breath sometimes you feel it moving more on the left of the body and sometimes more on the right side of the body and this movement of the breath from the left and the right if you just sort of watch it happen and focus on it and in some cases people say try to make sure that it's happening in the way you want it to um, then leads to the breath moving into a third direction which is from the base of the spine up a sort of spiritual equivalent of the spine to the very top of your head, where there's a thousand-petaled lotus. So these are all allegories for the practice, but in this case, it's not a gardener. In this case, he's saying, like, you guys, you like dancing. This is the kind of dancing you want to do. Incredible. Well, we've got time for one last short poem. Uh, What would you like to read next? Well, that's wonderful to hear, because I'd like to do a different kind of Kabir verses for you now. And this one also features another characteristic of Kabir, which is that he's not always regarded as being kind of somebody who was always very serious. He often um, thought of us in relation to laughter. And this verse is called, I laugh when I hear. Pani bichamina piyasi mohi sun sunahave hasi, is what it's called in Hindi. I laugh when I hear. A fish in the water is thirsty. Without knowledge of the self, Everything's a lie. Why go to Matara? Why go to Kashi? Why don't you see the treasure buried at home? You wander searching for it outside. The musk is in the deer's navel gland, but it seeks its scent in forest after forest. Kabir says, Listen, brother Sahads, to Sahaj you will find the indestructible. And so, obviously, one problem with that verse is that I'm leaving untranslated a key concept in the very last line. Through Sahaj, you will find the indestructible. So what on earth is Sahaj? So there are certain verses that have these technical terms, which I think it's best to leave untranslated because you need to contemplate them and discuss them with others and yourself. Sahaj is a particularly important one in Kabir, and it goes right back, in fact, to the time of the late Buddhists as well. The, time, the idea of Sahaj was something which was simultaneously arisen, born together. So sometimes people think it refers to something which is your own innate nature. But it's interesting as well that from the Buddhist background, which is connected with Kabir as well, uh, it meant the simultaneous arising 
of samsara and nirvana, the simultaneous experience that we have of life in this world and also of liberation while still in this world. Okay, well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but that's an incredible place to stop. I've been talking to Peter Friedlander about his new book, Kabir Poems in Transformation. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on to the program. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, and I'm glad we got to a perfect point to finish the talk on as well. Yes, great. Okay, my name is Di Cousins, and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.